When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast. The England men's side are back playing Red Bull Cricket and the Women's World Cup is just hours away from getting underway. I'm Yaz Rana and today I'm joined by the Editor-in-Chief of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker, the Magazine Editor of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, and a very special guest today, West Indies T20 World Cup winner and one of the most popular new voices on the commentary scene, Carlos Brathwaite. Thanks for joining the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. We will also be playing an interview we did earlier with Shield Berry, the former Wisden editor and very famous cricket journalist whose claim to fame is watching more England tests live than any man living or dead. Um, But first, let's head to Mark Butcher, who I spoke to earlier today about the West Indies England series and what it takes to win away in the West Indies. England very rarely win in West Indies, Butch. Uh, I think you were part of the only team to win out there in the last 50 years. England have just lost the Ashes 4-0. What kind of chance do you give England going into this series? Um, well, I mean, every, every team since the 2004 um, side to go down there has gone down there as favourites. Um, and for one reason or another, has come unstuck, whether that be spectacular um, batting collapses in the first Test match followed by timid declarations or just um, just poor cricket, I suppose. Um, or, you know, Roston Chase having the, the match of his life, etc., etc. The, 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 the reasons are myriad. But mainly, I think, the issue has been, um, and you could say this for all, for all England tours of, of late anyway, is that just have, they haven't managed to put enough runs on the board first time round. Um, and the bowlers, the bowling attacks selected at times haven't had the right ingredients to be able to unlock um, you know, a, a batting lineup that is that is desperate to kind of hang in there and do the hard yards that England's batting lineups haven't been willing to do. Let's let's look at the 2004 bowling attack, for example, that went on to become the sort of the legendary four horsemen of the apocalypse in in 2005. So you've got Hoggard with a new ball, Hoggard Harmison. Um, you know, Hoggard pitch up swing, Harmison swing pace bounce. Then old ball Flintoff and Jones. Um, low skinny trajectory reverse swing from Jones high pace and just relentless accuracy um, and, and height and hitting the pitch from Flintoff um, and in that four you had all of the ingredients to be able to take advantage of what are the usual characteristics of a West Indies pitches a little bit up and down um, not a massive amount of um, not a massive amount of lateral movement through the air unless the ball is brand spanking you so you need people that can hit the pitch hit the seam and make the ball 
um, behave off the surface. Add that a spin bowler in Ashley Giles who is able to, to, to bowl long, long spells, give the fast bowlers a rest um, and go at two and over. Um, and you've got the perfect ingredients really as, as a bowling attack. And as I've said, you know, when you look at the batting, pitches aren't, they can be very flat there. I mean, the old antique recreation ground, of course, where Lara got the 400 um, and breaking his own 370 off. Um, you know, that, that no longer exists. So the, the pitches out there generally tend to be quite hard work in terms of batting. So you've got to dig, you've got to dig your runs out. Mm. Um, you know, uh, there aren't many passages of play where the, where the ball is flying to wall parts and, you know, everyone's enjoying themselves. It's kind of, it can be quite grim. Um, wear a few uh, and, and, just, and just churn out as many as you can possibly gather in order to get your noses in front of the matches. You mentioned the pitches there briefly. Looking at the bowlers England have taken to the Caribbean, which do you think will suit conditions more than normal? Mark Wood's going to be, it's going to be so, so important because he is so, is so different from everybody else in terms of, in terms of speed. Um, however, you wouldn't say that he's, you know, sort of like a, a guy that's going to hit the relentless length um, and, and really exploit any sort of up and down movement. But, but he is definitely England's ace in the pack. Now, it's going to be incumbent upon um, the likes of Robinson, um, Wokes. You know, Wokes, Wokes is going to have to be the sort of the guy that makes breakthroughs with the new ball when and if it swings in the early part, in the early part of things. Um, he, he's very much the sort of the, the, the leader of the pack in terms of experience. But in terms of his style of bowling, he's perhaps not the leader of the pack for England. So Robinson... Um, tall, hit the pitch, be, be accurate. Um, Overton perhaps comes into, comes into the reckoning a little bit for England because of that, that fact. Um, and Leach is going to be mighty important. I think, you know, the, the, the Grenada, I don't know enough about in terms of the playing surface. The, the new um, ground at Antigua, the, the spin bowlers certainly enjoy themselves there as well. So, you know, the spin is going to have to play a part and, and Jack Leach is going to have to, to really step up and prove that, that he deserves um, not only the backing of his captain, which, we, which we've, we've discussed many times. Does he have it? I don't know. Um, but he's going to have to have it uh, on this trip. And, um, and, and the seamers are going to have to work very, very hard to be able to give Mark Wood the opportunity to, to strike. Um, and, and, and that means being unbelievably accurate, um, you know, keeping, keeping the run rates low so that when Mark Wood does get the chance to bowl, he's not doing it. Um, you know, he's not doing it as a sort of, um, as a donkey style bowler he's doing it as a strike bowler which is you know he's the only one that England have we're talking two days into the four day warm-up game uh, it's gone pretty well for England so far five of the top six past 50 Johnny Berto scored 100 I guess the only selection decision there was picking Dan Lawrence over Ollie Pope obviously Pope had a really difficult ashes I'm, I'm actually quite surprised he's not in the team because I was slightly slightly surprised he got picked in the squad but I thought if he's picked in the squad he's going to play because when you've had a really hard run, is drink ferrying the, the best way to get you back into form? Would, would he not have been better coming back to Surrey and spending some time in the nets with the coaches he's, he's had since he was a kid? I, I think so. I mean, you know, I was surprised that they took him on the trip. I think, I think he needs time away from that environment. And, you know, he's already, I mean, if it was a computer game, he's already solved county cricket, right, in terms of his, in terms of his output. Um, but but it's more more a case of being out of the um, out of the spotlight, given the opportunity to go and work very very hard at sorting out what type of player he wants to be and how he wants to to go about 
um, turning his un undoubted talent into into run making um, potential. The only you know the only currency that matters at Test match level. Um, and so yeah, taking him on the trip and then not playing him, I, I'm, I'm not sure I get. Maybe there's some grand plan that I'm that I'm missing. But but I, I tend to agree with you. Um, you know, Lawrence has, has benefited massively from not being part of the debacle really in Australia. Um, he's a very very confident lad. Um, has you know he's not exactly. Um, he's not exactly the antidote to England's sort of quirkinesses in the top order. However, what he does have is a sort of a, um, a real street fighter's ability to kind of to make runs um, and perhaps to put a little bit of sting back on to the, to the opposition given the opportunity. So uh, it'd be very, very interesting to see how that works out. I guess another thing on Pope traveling and not playing is that a lot of people in the media, perhaps because they just want to see new names out there, kind of say, well, if you're not going to play the spare batter, you might as well bring someone who's not played before for experience. What do you do you see merit in that argument? Like, is that actually valuable bringing someone who's not played test cricket before? Like, is that an experience that puts them in better stead when they might potentially make their test debut down the line? Well, I'd, fl I'd flip that around and say, look, if taking another another sort of low or middle to low lower middle order batter on on this trip when you've got literally no cover for numbers one two and three is just mad mm. you know are you telling me that if if a finger gets broken which can happen which is likely in the west indies um you know to to one of uh, lees or crawley um or god forbid joe root that ollie pope as the spare batter is going to bat one two or three Given, given everything that he suffered um, further on down the order. I think that's mad. So that's, that's another area where I would say, look, I don't think that's been a particularly smart um, piece of selection. You know, if you wanted to take somebody for that sort of experience, at least, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know about that argument. I don't know whether or not being in the environment, you know, carrying drinks, et cetera, then helps you out further down the line. I never did it. It was, you know, there you go, you're in and all the very best. Um, so I don't know. I don't know about that. But what I do know is, is if you're selecting a, selecting a 15 or a 16, I don't know how many they, how many are they take? I think 16, 16. Which is a little bit more normal. Um, that you would take, you'd want to take cover. Wouldn't you? you take cover for fast bowlers, you take cover for top order batters, you take cover for middle order batters, you take cover for spin. And England have got no cover for the top order. I think Andrew Strauss said uh, when the squad was announced that Dan Lawrence could be an option to open. Dan Lawrence hasn't opened the batting since he was 18 in 2015. No, I mean, it's it. just a bad call. It, uh, I mean, you know, dress it up any way you want. Um, fingers crossed uh, that it doesn't get exposed, but it's a bad call. And finally, obviously, English test cricket is a, a low ebb at the moment. Um, it's been a pretty, pretty bleak last 11 months or so. Um, what's on your kind of your, your England wish list for the series? What would you like to see happen by the end of it? Look, I, th I think win, lose or draw the series. I mean, obviously, wanting them to win the series, right? It'd be amazing. I'm going to be out there. You know, there's no, there's no party like a, a winning party in the West Indies. I can guarantee you of that. I think one of the one of the most dispiriting things about the last, um, you know, the, the, particularly the Australian tour, but but at various and multitudinous um, occasions over the last two or three years, has been just how easy England are to beat at times. Mm. You can, you know, everyone can think of examples where, where they haven't lied down and where there has, there has been something amazing happening, you know, Ben Stokes, for example. However, you know, more often than not, England find themselves a little bit behind or a little bit up against it in a match and the whole thing is over in a blink of an eye. You know, there's, there's just no, you know, the NASA's great thing back in the, in the late 90s when it took over was, okay, we're, we might not, we're, we're definitely not the worst side in the world, even though the, the stats said we were. 
we're definitely not the best side in the world, but goodness gracious, we're going to make ourselves a lot more difficult to beat these days. And it's something that's come out of the South Africa camp after their, their victory just recently in, in New Zealand about having that um, bloody mindedness and that grit and that fight um, and determination not to, not to give victories away. And I think England have, have given victories away so, so easily in the, in the recent past that that is the thing that I would like to see stop. Mm. And if you do that, you, could, you find yourselves in positions to, to win matches against the head a little bit, particularly away from home. Um, and so the resilience is, is absolutely the thing that I want to see, particularly from the batting lineup. Nice one. Well, um, safe travels and see you there in a couple of weeks. Can't wait. Carlos, between us, we've spent a lot of time previewing the series from an English perspective over the last few weeks. It'd be really good to get a sense of where West Indies are at the moment. Um, they've had some positive results in the last year or so, winning in Bangladesh, that one-wicket win against Pakistan, a few defeats thrown there as well. And I asked partially because, barring a handful of established stars, it's a squad with a lot of names that won't be hugely familiar to, to England fans. Yeah, I think the most important thing for, I think, West Indies as a culture, as a team, regardless of format, is batting. Um, and how can you put together consistent batting performances as a unit? Um, even when you look back at the Bangladesh performance, there were a couple standout performers, um, Kyle Mears and Kruma Bonner, and they would have carried the batting a bit. And we've found in the past that there was always that one person, that one partnership that could always stand out. Um, you think of Jason Holder's 100 in Antigua versus England, um, Jermaine Blackwood, 100 in Antigua versus England in 2015 as well. Um, but what West Indies have been searching for is a complete batting performance. And the closest we have probably gotten to that in a long while pre-Bangladesh was ironically against England. Um, Jason Holder getting a double, Shane Dorich getting a 100 and a comprehensive win at Kensington Oval. So they'd be on the hunt for another complete batting performance. And I think there are a lot of places up for grabs in the middle order and a few guys who'd want to stake the claim coming back into the team. Mm. I mean, we, we generally do get to see the best of West Indies against England. Their record against England is, is so good recently. Yeah, what, 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 what is that about then, Carlos? How come whenever whenever England go out to the West Indies, firstly, we always go out there quite smugly and think, well, we're probably going to get a result. We never do, to begin with. Well, that but, might be but, part but, of it why, right there, the, yeah. the smugness. But, but, but why is it that... Yeah, West Indian cricket has seemed to raise their game whenever the English turn up. What is it about the English that gets the juices going? I just think you always travel with a massive set of fans. Yeah. And it always just creates a real good buzz, a real good atmosphere. Um, you know, recently, West Indies more famed for the T20 heroics. And we like to, or we are thought of as the Calypso Kings and, you know, Carnival cricket and what's not. And I think that kind of atmosphere brings the best out in the team. Um, a lot more so in T20 than in Test cricket, but the atmosphere around the Test series it really riles you up, and you know you know something is on the line. And I think whenever you put on the jersey and you you, you represent the badge of West Indies, there's so many sovereign nations that you represent, so many people that you can put smiles on their faces. But when England comes to town, it just raises that up a just notch. That little bit more. Yeah, it's, it's just a different feeling and a different atmosphere. Um, and it's the old four. You always love to get one over England. Um, <laughs> a lot of nice stories you'll have heard from past as well. And a lot of guys want to etch their name into that history moving forward. So it's always a nice battle. It's just one of them, one of them derbies that you love to be a part of. And I'm sure a lot of the guys will be looking forward to it. Yeah. And you mentioned a few of those names there as well. Um, we saw a little bit of Kyle Mayers who came from nowhere, didn't he? And made that amazing double against Bangladesh to, to kind of nail that series, really, a 2-0 away win. 
he'll probably be in there, you think, what, five or six. But before him, with Bonner and, and one or two others, it's a pretty raw, isn't it? And kind of undefined middle order. Do you, do you see that there's enough class in there to, to bother the English? Yeah, I think it, it, the order's been a bit stop-start. There's yeah. not been much consistency. So we've always been searching for that opener to accompany Craig Brath, and I'm sure the English could understand yeah. it, for trying to find someone to partner Alistair Cook. So John Campbell's back in, right? Yeah, so John, John Campbell's, Campbell's back, in, back, yeah. in. back in. And Jeremy Solizano has been very unfortunate to miss out. To miss out. So he re- replaced John Campbell, got hit feeling at short leg, got injured. I don't think he batted in the only no, test he that he played. Um I know he's out playing A-team and John is back in after a very good start to first-class mm. cricket. So that in itself is a nice little battle. And I think it will be good for West Indies cricket to have those little battles for opening position, number three, number four. I'm really excited to see Bonner, Brooks and Kyle Mears in that middle order. At one point in time or another, they've all proven that they can perform at the highest level. But as I say, we need a complete batting performance. So how can that middle order stitch together a couple half centuries, maybe a century or two, and get West Indies to 300, 350 in the first innings, which we've been struggling to do on a consistent basis? I, I wanted to ask you, Carlos, about Carl Mayers, because I think most would accept he played the, the test innings of last year, unbelievable innings against Bangladesh. He got our award, didn't he? In the magazine. He did. We gave him the innings of the, the year. Innings of the year awards. But to look at his record... Uh, there was no real sign of where that came from. But reading a bit more around him, it sounded like he was an exciting young cricketer in Barbados and there were high hopes for him, but it just hadn't quite come about. Is he, is he a guy that you know? He's a few years younger than you, but you'd have played with him. Yeah, I know, I know him quite well, actually. Yeah. His story is such a nice one. So out of Weston, he's under 19 World Cup. Um, at that point in time, Dwayne Smith would have been smashing it to all parts. Everyone felt that he would have been the next West Indian batsman to play IPL, take the world alight in T20 cricket. Um, he's big, he's burly, smashes it a long way, loves to bat spin, which is something that not many West Indians can claim to do. Um, and he just went off the boil a bit. Barbados, unfortunately for him, has a lot of all-rounders. Myself, Jason Holder, Kevin Stout, Raymond Reefer, the list is endless. So he had to wait behind a few people. He went to the Wainwright Islands, played there for a few years, for CPL, for St. Lucia, which is the franchise company in the Windward Islands. Um, and then, unfortunately, when one of the hurricanes hit, he was actually trapped um, in Dominica. Um, there was no sign or sound from him for a few days, and the cricket fraternity in the Caribbean and in Barbados especially was fearing for the worst. Um, thankfully, he made it out, um, and it's almost as though that hit the reset button for him. He came back home. He starts to open the batting at club level and instead of trying to be an all-rounder, he then put a real focus on his batting, um, which is what got him to that level in the first place. Started to open, started to take his batting more seriously, started to think like a batsman, which I think is very important as well. Um, And it's just been a massive turnaround. Um, The way he plays white ball cricket as an opener in T20 or batting number three or four and 50 over. The way he's then slotted into number five or six in four-day cricket and almost being that link between the first new ball and the second new ball and take it apart in the back end as well. Um, it's been a sensational turnaround and he's the type of character that loves a challenge. You know, when, the, when he was selected for the Bangladesh tour, I remember doing an interview... Um, with someone and they were asking me who the guys to look out for in the tour and I was like Kyle Mears for sure because he's someone that having this 
glimpse of an opportunity would definitely want to take it. Some more players spin very well. Um, and if there was one person that I think can go down there and show the bravado that is necessary to win a series in Bangladesh, it would be him. And I think with this series on the horizon, um, I know England's spin stocks are not the main thing, but the level of arrogance and confidence that he has in his own game, I'm sure that he isn't happy with what happened after the double century. Um, but I'm sure that if there's one person that would love to give it a go, a proper go, in this series and help Jason Holder, Craig Braffitt and the more established names bring the series home, it will be Kyle Mears. You must have been feeling pretty smug during that innings then with that prediction. Talk to me about Jaden Seals. He's not played much first-class cricket at all. He's come straight to the West Indies test side and he's done so well. He was brilliant in that Under-19 World Cup a couple of years ago. How excited are people in the West Indies game about Jaden Seals? Very excited. Um, I hadn't seen much of him, I'll be honest. And then we saw the World Cup. Um, but there have been a few people that we've tried to take straight up the R19 World Cup and shove them into the West Indies team and it has not always worked out. So I just was a little sceptical of how quickly he was fast-tracked. Um, he was fast-tracked, I think, straight into the squad on the England tour for the quote-unquote COVID series. Um, but talking to people in the setup, um, one, he's really skillful. And I think in the West Indies, aside from Jason Holder, we lack pace bowlers that have pace and have a real genuine skill to swing the ball potentially both ways um, and they are saying that he is the most skillful fast bowler in the West Indies apart from Jason um, and the other thing that they love about him he wants to learn um, he's always asking how can he get better um, apparently him and Kimar Roach are getting very close um, and if we talk about skill again Kimar is a man that's very skillful. Surrey would have um, been been fortunate enough to have him on the books um, last season. Um, but he's always seeking information. Um, so for a young person to come into international cricket the way that he has without that foundation of first-class cricket, to not only get the start that he has, but not let it get to his head and actually try to get bit bigger and better as you go on. Um, I think he's a name that we'll hear for a number of years. I guess something that's quite similar about both England and West Indies is how, how different both squads are between Test cricket and T20 cricket. I think only Holder and Mayers featured in both squads for this double England tour at the start of this year. What, why is that the case now? I mean, there are some like really obviously incredibly talented batters outside the Test squad at the moment. Like Nicholas Puran has not played much first-class cricket, but he looks... Like, he, he's a player who could have the game to thrive in Test cricket. Shimron Hetmeyer, he last played Test cricket when he was only 22. Is it really difficult for a, for a young West Indian batter in particular, maybe, to, to forge a career in both at the moment? Um, that's a very good question. Um, <laughs> he gets them out sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a regular occurrence. Um, <laughs> um, it is it's a very good question because off the field, um, there's a big disparity between what an English player can earn just playing county cricket in all three formats and as a result of that honing the red ball skill in the county championship versus what a West Indian player can earn only playing in the West Indies. So a lot of players have had to use the pathway of first-class cricket, one-day cricket, CPL, to make it into franchise cricket to then be able to get some financial security um, and you can find yourself in a trap where you're flying all around the world and then not playing first-class cricket. And I am one of the persons that could safely say that I fell into the trap. Um, 
no regrets, but you can definitely see the drop off in my batting from when I was playing red ball cricket, first class cricket, test cricket versus when I wasn't. I think my last first class game was a test match in 2016. So there's six years now. And if you compare that to, let's say, a Chris Walks or Ben Stokes, um, to any of the guys that play for England now, they always have county championship to come back to. And I think red ball is a real nice reset to assist and to provide a foundation for your white ball game. Unfortunately, as I say, with the financial disparity, not a lot of players can take the time off to spend four or five months in the Caribbean, leave out franchise cricket to only play red ball. Um, so unless we find a way where we can keep the Shimron, Hetmers and Nicholas Poran's um, bank account happy, uh, I know it doesn't sound good, but it is yeah. the world we live in. You need to have that financial security. And it's not always about money. But length of contract as well. You can sign a three, four year deal in England. In the West Indies, it's always a one year rolling contract. So you get injured at the wrong point in time. You could be without a contract for the next 12 months. And if everyone performs, that could easily roll on to 24 months. And you, you, you marry that to someone that has a three year contract. They can miss a whole season and still know that for the next two years, they'll be employed. They'll be able to, um, to do their craft. So unless we can find a way to, ensure financial security in the West Indies alone, it'll be difficult to keep players that are good in the white ball game to keep them playing first class cricket and then ultimately pushing for a test play. I think there's there's often, and perhaps less so these days, but there's been an impression, not just in the Caribbean, but in England too, that players almost turn their back on test cricket and focus on T20. But do you think actually the desire is there more than people... Um, necessarily think so take Kyron Pollard as an example I interviewed him a few months ago and he said very early doors he was told by the the board by the selectors that they saw him as a white ball player and sort of pushed him in that direction fast forward a few years he gets a lot of criticism for being you know a mercenary a white ball player but actually those choices don't perhaps aren't quite as clear as they might seem from the outside looking in yeah well the same thing happened to me Um, I remember Obviously, leading into that, remember the name and the World Cup final. My 2015 was um, first-class cricket, ODI cricket, red uh, red ball cricket with Barbados, or with the A-team, or touring with the West Indies. And it provided a really good platform that when it was then called up for the World Cup, I had batting behind me where I batted a lot of balls, um, left the World Cup, played probably one test after that, and then got handed the T20 captaincy and basically shunted to the side in red ball cricket and a lot of times selectors or the public at large basically say okay you failed in red ball you're a white ball player but actually i think more players appreciate test cricket than the current playing group is given credit for Mm -hmm. but sometimes persons are pigeonholed from public or selectors um, that they are white ball cricketers i mean you're pushed in that direction the financial ramifications of trying to push back to go into something that's less lucrative in red ball, longer and more difficult versus saying, okay, well, if I try to play red ball and you don't want me, I'll just go and play white ball cricket, play all around the world, um, experience privileges that not a lot of people get, fly first class, live in the best hotels, meet people from all around the world, different cultures. Um, When a player eventually does that for a year or two, then people say, well, why does he want to play first class cricket? But two years ago, he wanted to, and he wasn't afforded the opportunity to. So sometimes it's looking at the holistic view of what the player has been through, 
how people view the player, how he's been pigeonholed, and then why his ultimate decision to play franchise cricket was decided. But at the same time, franchise cricket is a blessing. You look at the England white ball team, I guess you call, call them the COVID team as well. They had to pick a whole new squad. Yeah. They played against Pakistan. They beat Pakistan, Pakistan's first team. But if that squad was 15 players, about eight of them had played PSL. So they've come into international cricket, making a lot of the debuts or playing in the second series, but they're seasoned enough playing against that level of competition because of franchise cricket. So I think there's still ways to use franchise cricket as an avenue to get players ready for first-class cricket. It's not international cricket versus franchise cricket, but I think there needs to be a little more dialogue around who plays what, why they play, when they play, etc., to ensure that the territories, the franchise teams, and the players get the best um, best outcome for all parties involved. Mm. Um, how did you feel in 2016 when you were told that? Because people might not know this, but you, you played three test matches and you averaged 45 with the bat. <laughs> That's pretty good. And being told that Red Bull wasn't a viable option that time when you got the T20 captaincy. How, how do you feel at the time about that? Yeah, well, it was disappointing because I love test cricket. Um, I didn't bowl well. So as much as my average with the bat is sensational, my average with the ball is just as ridiculous in the opposite direction. Um, but my thing was at the time, and I think around that time, you had the situation with Stokes, Walks and Ali, where I think Moen Ali was buying at six and Stokes at eight, and they swapped them because they wanted Stokes to be a batting all around the walks, to be bowling all around them, Moen Ali to be spinning all around them. And my thought at the time was, why not bat me at six? I'm obviously doing well with the bat. It allows you to play an extra bowler. If I don't do well with the ball again, then you can drop me. Or if I don't do well with the bat, you can drop me. But dropping me because I'm not doing well with the ball when you're obviously doing better than the top order with the bat doesn't make much sense. And obviously, as I mentioned, as a team, West Indies aren't proficient over a period of time as a batting unit. Um, so I think for me, that was one of the more frustrating things. Um, and then... Fast forward a bit after we had a tour to Pakistan, he didn't play. And then I actually gave up a CPL contract to try to be in the reckoning for the England tour, which is directly after Pakistan. Um, and I wasn't even told I was not part of the tour. Um, I have a cricket company and one of the boys came to get the bats fixed up for the tour. And I was like, so you were selected? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I got your call. So that was their saying, like, why I get a call to say yes or no? So there's a lot of things like that that happen that then it made me ask myself, well, do I really want to play first-class cricket, leave out um, potential to travel around the world, meet new people, experience new cultures, be paid handsomely for it, um, really slogging away in Barbados or in the West Indies, playing four-day cricket without any sort of dialogue to say if I'm still in the setup or not, or shall I just play franchise cricket and if the opportunity presents itself, play some four-day um, and they chose the latter, obviously, but that could have gone so, so differently. Like, Carlos, what is your opinion? What do you want to do? And then how can we best ensure that you get enough red ball cricket to try to get back into the team um, whilst allowing you to go around the world, play, get some financial security, and ultimately continue to add to your skills because you are a part of the white ball team. And I think a lot of those conversations need to be had. For context as well, for our listeners, those three test matches that Carlos played, they weren't against weaker nations as well. That was 59 against Australia at the MCG, 69 against Australia at the SCG, and then a half century against India. And then that's your lot. 
which you know give it that's it yeah <laughs> which show you another 31 runs at the SEP you would not be sitting here <laughs> Yeah, I look back on my time in Test Cricket fondly. Um, with the ball, obviously not as exciting, um, but it was part of a bowling attack that was struggling. I think in those three tests, we took nine wickets in total. So my one wicket in those three tests, as bad as it is, and it is really bad, um, when you look at how the team was, um, it was about par for the course as fourth yeah. bowler. Um, but I love Test Cricket, and I think a lot of players do love Test Cricket. It is a fantastic test of mental skills, tactical skills physical as well um and yeah I, I think the public doesn't appreciate how much players actually love test cricket it's very hard it's a grind and players moan all the time but players will still throw the test stats at you like nothing your first class stats like there's nobody's business so there is a place for test cricket i think it just needs to compare one financially with your franchise and your, your white ball cricket. Um, and secondly, the weaker nations or the nations with less financial ability need to be propped up in some way. Because if we just talk about the numbers of it, an Australian guy can play for 20,000 Australian per test match. I think the English play for what, 18, 20,000 pounds a test match. If one of the wrestling is a go out there and feeling for two days watching Joe Root or Steve Smith score a double, um, and you're getting five, six thousand US, that's a big disparity. If you can go and play in franchise cricket for the amount of money that they play for in test cricket, there are not many people that would choose to play five days for less money than they would to play four T20 games for the same amount of money. So it's not all about money. It never is and it never will be, but it also needs to make sense. Test cricket is very hard mentally, physically. And the payment needs to re reflect the grind that Test cricket is. And it does re reflect it for Indian cricketers, English cricketers, Australian cricketers. And that's why you can see those teams put the best teams out at every moment. But it's a lot more difficult for your Pakistan, Sri Lanka, West Indies, etc. If we're looking further down the line, though, and we, we all... Everyone who loves Test cricket has a soft spot for West Indies Test cricket, obviously, right? They're everybody's second team. It's, it's the only team where, when they play against the English, I don't mind who wins, right? And I'm not just saying that to be nice. Um, but looking at it five years down the line, ten years down the line, the only way that we can envision a world where the West Indies are even barely equivalent to what they were in the 70s and the 80s is if the real talents coming through, the likes of Poran, the likes of Hetmeyer, it can't be beyond the wit of man that we find a system, find a way where they can simultaneously develop as a white ball cricketer and also maintain their skills in red ball cricket as well. Because we've seen it with Pakistanis, which is a good comparison. Socioeconomically, it's a good comparison. But we've seen it that there are players who, who you know, are very busy white ball cricketers, but it, it's not to the detriment of their red ball cricket either. There seems to be more of a division in West Indies cricket, I suppose, at the moment. And I can under, and you articulate what, the reasons why brilliantly, but there, there's always going to be that, that hinge point, right, for West Indies cricket going forward in the test game if some of its most naturally talented young players are veered away from the Red Bull at that early point and kind of effectively asked to make that choice because then you're always going to be hamstrung. I'm not saying that Poran necessarily would have been a good test match player, but the frustration is... We know, we'll never know, will we, really? It's almost, 
certainly that we'll never know. And the next poor Anne, the 18-year-old, you know, stroke maker in Trinidad or whatever, coming out, you know, he's got all the talent in the world. It would be a travesty if he gets to 22, 23, and he's kind of forced to say, right, you go one way or you go the other way. Because we've seen with other countries that you can kind of go both uh, for all the reasons that you outline the problems that, that, that are therein. But if we're looking at the dream of the West Indies becoming the, the dominant Red Bull power that they once were, then we need to find a way through this, right? But I also think if you look back on the West Indies glory years, a lot of players would have played in South Africa, first-class cricket. A yeah. lot of players played county cricket Over here, as well. For sure, yeah. um, so in that ideal world, how can we allow players, obviously there's no international window of sorts for IPL, so that's one way of making money on the franchise scene. You have to play a CPL, you have to play a franchise tournament in a red ball, whether that be at home, in England, Australia, right. wherever. And then you have one other window in the world to do whatever you want to do. But how can we ensure that you get your, red, your white ball in IPL, you get your white ball at home, CPL, that's home drum beats first, and then you need to get in at least one red ball season somewhere in the calendar, and everything else is yours. And if I think if the Westings Cricket Board can find a way to have that flexibility in the calendar. It allows, one, for players to go away and earn money, but allows them to also concentrate on red ball over a season, not a couple of games. Yeah. You're picking yeah, a season, yeah, yeah. either the West Indian season, the English season, wherever, and you play that whole season, six to ten games, whatever. It will not only help their white ball, but it also help build a collection of players that West Indies can eventually choose from. And you may easily find there are two players that decide to go to Sri Lanka to play first class, two have decided to go to Australia. Now, when we're looking for a team to go to Sri Lanka, obviously those two players come to the fore before two guys that were playing in the West Indies. Mm -hmm. And likewise, Australia, New Zealand, etc. But I think it needs to be length of contract as well. So I can't tell you, I'll contract you for a year. You can make this decision. Then you get injured or it don't go as the way it will, you would like. And then you're on the outside. Because then the next year, I tell myself, well, the survival mentality. I need to find a way to survive. Whether in the West Indies, out of the West Indies, red ball, white ball or not. So if it's a, a case where it's not about survival and it's more about excellence, where, okay, we believe in you. You yeah. have a three-year window yeah. to do this, to do that. We need to see X, Y, Z. And after those three years, we could reevaluate. Then that is financial security. That is job security. And that's a way to plan moving forward. And also, psychologically, as a cricketer as well, you can't play if, you're, if it's a hand-to-mouth, week-to-week kind of existence. You know, cricket's the hardest game mentally to play anyway. So you need that kind of security of knowing that you're trusted and backed. And it taps into something that struck me over the last few years. How many West Indian cricketers you hear about, get excited about, and then a year or two later, their, their names are gone and... You're on Crick Info and, and, and it's, 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 they've like vanished into the ether somewhere and seems to tap into what you're saying here, that there's a sort of precariousness around the, the professional game in, in the West Indies, especially as a young player. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I have a story to share, Slim, that I was contracted by Barbados Cricket Association and then at that point in time they had the High Performance Centre. I got asked to join the High Performance Centre, I was elated. Um, joined the High Performance Centre to have to give up my contract with Barbados. When that contract finished, the Barbados contracts hadn't finished as yet, so I was between contract, and then it got injured just before the season. So then now I don't have a contract, and I am injured, and I can't play to earn another contract. You get no money, 
no one really looks after you um, and you're basically on the outside looking in trying to find a way that increases your survival instincts mm-hmm. so all of a sudden my mentality will be I need to find a way to get back in I need to find a way to make a life for myself I need to find a way to make it as a professional cricketer if you compare that to someone like Pat Cummings who made his debut at 18 we heard nothing about Pat Cummings for what three four yeah. five years but they kept him uh, in the system kept him in the system yeah. looked after him i know he's australia test captain no i'm not by any stretch of imagination saying that i could be wrestling this test captain if i'd been treated like pat cummings but what about the next guy sure. who have we lost in the system that could have been a pat cummings who if we'd invested in for two three four years could now be leading the West Indies, leading the attack, leading the batting, etc. We've lost Joffre, we've lost CJ, we've lost Bethel, maybe Shea Simmons, who will be next? And how can we stop them from escaping the system, but using those persons to build a bigger pool of players? Yeah, I want to ask Carlos about the, the batting specifically, kind of going back to this series. And I think we, we've been talking about this on previous podcasts. I think we're all expecting it to be quite a low scoring series with two really good bowling attacks and two kind of struggling batting units. But it struck me over the last few years when West Indies players come into the test squad, the batters, their first-class records aren't great. They're generally averaging kind of low 30s, even high 20s, a couple of them. Is that a reflection on the pitches, first-class cricket in general, or is there not the batting talent that you would hope to see in the Caribbean at the moment? Um, I think a bit of both. Um, On one hand, I think we do mature very late as cricketers in the Caribbean. Um, and as a result of that, you find your players, when they reach 31, 32, 33, they now actually understand the game a lot more. Um, but then they're 31, 32, 33, they're looking for the next fresh face, 19 or 20-year-old. Um, added to that, the pitches aren't the best, so they're quite slow, not conducive to good stroke play, which is why you see a lot of hitters, because on a slower track, on a track that's not the best, the ball is in your zone, you stroke it through extra cover, you could be run up coming for one. Um, whereas if you hit that ball for six, you know you got your six. Um, so I think a combination of the pitches not being the best, the outfields potentially could be a lot better and quicker as well. So you want that when a guy plays an elegant cover drive like your Shamar Brooks or your Shea Hope that he get full value for the money. That encourages the next guy to try to play another cover drive. But if I cover driving the ball and I sprinting for one or two, to not get a run out versus someone who can smash that same ball over cover for six, I know which one they can try to do. Um, <laughs> so I think it's been a combination of both. The umpiring hasn't been the best either. Um, but a few times we've seen like real flat tracks to prepare. And I think going into series, when we find that it improves the batsmanship, it forces players now to not only graft hard for 20 or graft hard for 30, but because the pitches are so good, you get out at 20 and see someone else going to make 130, 140, I think, crap. When I get my chance in the second innings, I can't give it away. So I think if the pitches can become slightly more batting friendly, it allows the bowlers to work a bit harder. The spinners don't think as though they're world beaters because the tracks are bad. And the batsmen put a bigger price on the wicket. They get more value for the shots. And I think the whole cricket ecosystem could be a lot better. And it has been in the last few years. 
kind of reassuring to hear that problems with first class pitches is, is not a problem. Yeah, and I'm going to be talking about county cricket. There. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and moving on to the England warm up game, we're recording this at the start of the third day of England's four day warm up game. They're playing a reasonably strong cricket West Indies President's Eleven that features five players who played Test cricket for the West Indies. England are going pretty well so far. Five of their new look top six reached fifty with Johnny Bairstow. Going on to score 100, um, Phil, you wrote a very nice piece on wisdom.com about Thanks, this new look England top seven of whom only two started in the Ashes at the very start of the Ashes. Yeah. Do you have a question there? No, I just thought you were going to talk <laughs> about just your piece. Nice piece. Well <laughs> done, yeah. Phil, is the question. That's, that's often what you do. You just you just talk about yeah, no, the piece I, I you've written. I guess so, yeah. Just giving you an excuse to talk. I, I guess so. Um, yeah, look, I mean, it'll probably all go to shit, but I like it. I, I like the the balance. There's a, sort of, there's a sort of light and shade to it. There's a bit of variety. I like... Overall, that they've split up Root and, and Stokes. We talked about the number three slot last week. You know that I'm comfortable with Root there. I think it's sensible. And, and Lawrence, I'm pleased on a personal level because, you know, I know the lad a bit and, and I'm a big fan of his. I'm pleased that he's he's going to have the first go there. Uh, I think it's right and fair. Pope played at least three, maybe four of the test matches in Australia and didn't go well and hasn't has struggled, as we know. So... I think Lawrence in at four is fair. Uh, he played impishly yesterday um, uh, for 80-odd. Uh, the the opening bats make sense as well. You know, the, there's there's a left and right thing going on there. There's 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 the youngish hitter and the and the experienced, slightly kind of gnarly county cricket stalwart in Alex Lees, who's been playing the best part of a decade and has kind of grafted his way to a position where he probably has earned this chance. He looked okay for 60-odd. Scratched around a bit on a sort of turgid kind of track. I think he's on like four after an hour. Yeah, but look, it was what we're crying out for. <laughs> uh, and Crawley looks looked good as well. You know, Crawley always looks good until he gets out. Um, he's that kind of cricketer, Zach Crawley. But I like the I like the the, the rhythm of that top seven. Um, we spoke about folks as well a couple of weeks ago. Folks took the gloves in this game, so I, almost certainly this will be the top seven next week um, in Antigua. Uh, and yeah, cautiously, I like the setup. I like the thinking behind it. Whether it will work or not is another thing, mm. of course, but you, I like it. You answered my non-question very well. Thank you. Um, <laughs> as, as we predicted, Joe, the, the bowling attack for that warm-up game is the one that took the field at Brisbane plus Craig Overton. Um, say so much for that brave uh, reset. Um, Tom asked, the, the podcast is brilliant. I listen every week without fail and it has really helped me understand the game better as I've only really followed cricket since the start of the 2019 World Cup. Thanks again for your hard work getting the podcast out every week. I look forward to listening. He asked, basically... Yeah, he's nice, isn't it? He's very nice. Um, he basically asked, it, it makes sense to play Mahmood and or Fisher to give them exposure at this level in this series, given they've been picked. But there's a kind of problem in that with this England tail, Chris Wokes almost needs to play because the tail is so long. Yeah, I think Wokes does need to play. Um, I mean, we've... we've touched on this before with the, the lack of England's bowlers don't really bat at the moment Wokes Wokes is the standout all-rounder or bowling all-rounder so I think he does need to play there is something very odd that, that we're going to go into the start of this series with the same bowling attack that we kind of threw our heads up in despair after England picked it at Brisbane but you know this, this is a different situation Anderson Broad are not there now so it's a different conversation um, I think I, I would be tempted to I think Mahmood should play a test at some point in this series. I, I suspect Fisher is a little bit further back in the queue and is there for kind of experience to be in amongst the group. We might not see him in this series, but uh, as slightly odd as it is, I don't have any problems if that is the bowling attack they're going to go with in the first test. Will it turn? 
Carlos, next week? It always turns. Yeah. Because <laughs> this seems to be the, the properties of pitches now in the West Indies. They do seem to go. They're quite dry and they seem to go after a day or two. Yeah. Um, you may even get it on the first day, but it won't rag on the first no. day. The pitches, especially at Civiv, it is flat. Yeah. Um, yeah. It will definitely rag. It'll be a little bit slow as well. Um, but I think Civiv is one of the better cricket wickets for test cricket in the Caribbean. When you get to Kensington Oval, there'll be a bit of bounce, there'll be a bit of something Good. in it. A throwback to Fire in Babylon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I think Civiv, Civiv um, track is a nice one to start the series. Players can get in. Bowlers, if you bowl well, you get a bit of something out of it. Batters, if you put a price on your wicket, you can get a score. It's a massive series for Leech, isn't it? We, we've kind of wondered if Parkinson might leapfrog him and then I think most of us thought Leach does deserve a, a proper go given you know he got picked on the wrong pitches in the ashes but if there is a bit in it for the spinners as, as we expect there to be and it doesn't go well for him then that that could potentially be terminal for his test career given that England haven't seemed to have a lot of faith in him but flip side if he goes well then he comes back to England installed as their first choice spinner I think they're going to play a spinner much more regularly than they did under Silverwood uh, and then it could be a kind of rejuvenation point for Leach. So it really, it really is. It feels like this is kind of potentially make or break for his his career. And I'd like, I really hope it goes well for him because he's had whether it's injuries, selection, illness. Uh, illness he's had a horrible run for the last couple of years, and he, yeah, he deserves a break or two. It's such a weird career so far. He's done actually pretty well in the one home summer that he selected, but hasn't played a home test for for now nearly three years. Do, do you know where Stokes's bowling fitness is at? He's been bowling in the lunch breaks and stuff. He's got a side, side strain, isn't it? That he's recovering from or had a side strain? Yeah, but, he, but he's bowling in the... Yeah. So it's unlikely that he's going to bowl more than, than a couple of overs at best and by the sounds of it, which precludes therefore having a second spinner, you know, which would have been a long shot anyway. But I guess if you're going to play two, yeah. it would be a, on a flat one at Antigua when, when one is going to be ragging it in theory at least away from the right-hander. But if Stokes is not going to be able to get through 15, 20 a day, then that's overs, not well, fans, could, I mean, by the way. Could, could, be, could, be, could be interesting. Uh, this podcast will be coming out after the third day. If Leach is a really, really good day today, like, that might change their thinking a little bit. They think it's going to spin more than they previously thought. They'll rely on route, though, won't they? I yeah. 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 I yeah. can't see them playing Parkinson and Leach. Yeah. And also, really. we, we can't ask for much more, right? We've got five of, of the of the top seven from Brisbane are no longer there. We've got a new opening pair. We've got Lawrence in at four. We can't ask for too much. Parkinson, bless him. I know that he's your boy, but bless him. His time will yet come. Well, um, just finally, 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 finally. You're going to Barbados. He's going to Barbados next week or the week after, right? Him and the other lad who's normally on the show there. So you have to be in Barbados and you'll be stuck in a studio working for BT. cosmically wrong about that. Hopefully for Matt Parkinson's debut, seeing that live in the flesh. Yeah, dream on. But I guess my question though, what will he find in terms of the atmosphere around the ground as well as in it in Barbados the the epicenter of cricket right you know there is no more fertile place on earth for having produced great cricketers from you know the three w's to the sobers to Greenwich to Haynes to yourself to Marshalls you know you can you can go on for, forever it is an abomination to put my name in that list <laughs> If you watch it on YouTube, you might see me wink there. <laughs> but anyway, you know, does it retain its sort of symbolic attachment to cricket? You know, and it, the soul of Caribbean cricket remains in Barbados. And is it as strong now as it was when you were a kid? 
Yeah, it's always a strong. Um, and with England coming, there will be a buzz. Um, all the vendors will know. Yeah. The stock, little 20% extra. <laughs> uh, the tourists are in town. Um, and there will be a right buzz. Too. And uh, if you get a taxi, the taxi man will know who should play, who should not play, why X isn't playing, want to know why, why isn't playing. He'll probably even tell you a lot about English cricket and English cricketers. Um, now, there's still a massive buzz around in Barbados, uh, and I'm sure everything will be centered around ensuring that the English tourists are very well looked after, that they feel comfortable. And we understand that when we turn up to a game in Barbados and it's England v West Indies, that we're going to feel as though we are the away team. And everyone loves it. Um, there'll be a pool, I'm sure. Um, you get your shirt off, you get a nice tan, you drink some rum and cokes, enjoy the cricket. Um, what? <laughs> sounds pretty good, actually. Yeah. Sounds pretty good. <laughs> that's, that's enough. Let's game. move on. Yeah. Come on, let's move on. I'm taking one for the team by going. Um, next up, we'll talk about the Women's World Cup. The Women's World Cup would have started by the time this comes out. Uh, you can go back to last week's pod for our big fat preview of the tournament. Um, since the last pod, there have been some interesting warm-up game results. New Zealand pulled out a real statement win over Australia, chasing down 322 with nine wickets and seven overs in hand. Sophie Devine scored an unbeaten 1-6-1 in the inform Amelia Kerr, an unbeaten 92. Yeah, that's a big one, that, isn't but it? But a couple of days before that, they lost against Pakistan. Uh, it wasn't quite a full-strength New Zealand side. There was no Amelia Kerr for one. But Pakistan chased down 229 in the last over. Alia Riaz hit 62 off 52 from number seven. Kind of shows that any of the teams can beat anyone um, and at least capable of, at the very least, influencing who reaches the final four. India have won two warm-up games since we last recorded. One against South Africa by two runs in West Indies by about 80 runs. Harman Preet Kaur um, has found some form. She scored 100 against South Africa. Um, Carlos, got a question for you from one of the listeners. David asks, whose name does Carlos think we will remember after the Women's World Cup? And <laughs> see what he's done there. <laughs> cheeky. Uh, cheeky, very cheeky. Um, I like Amelia Kerr. Um, I think she's probably one of the next big superstars in the women's game. Um, but I'm hoping, and I'm very, being very biased, Haley Matthews will be the name that we remember. Um, she had a very inspiring performance in the finals in 2016 to bring West Indies the only T20 World Cup victory. Um, and I think she's kind of the prodigy to Stephanie Taylor. Bowls off spin, um, top order bat, and, you know, has the versatility like Stefani does to be able to play the long game, but then also up the tempo. Um, and I think if Stefani does go out there and put, puts in a, um, all-star performance in the tournament and becomes player of the series. It is something we would expect. Um, but I also think Haley Matthews has the ability to do the same thing, but probably less expected of her. Thankfully, she showed what she can do in the 100 over last summer. And I'm just hoping that she can take that into the World Cup, uh, put in some performances along with Stefania, along with DeAndre Dotting, the more elder um, states persons in the team. Um, and they, that is the backbone to the US Indies batting, in my opinion. And they need all three of them to be at the party more often than not to um, come close to qualifying and then potentially winning the tournament. What, what do you think represents success for West Indies in this tournament? Because we, we talked in our preview last week, we said the players they've got, we can see them pulling off a couple of big shocks, beating the best sides in the tournament, but may struggle for the consistency to get into that top four, into the semi finals. Is is a semi final spot? Is that would that be the aim, or is it, they just go into it and say we can win this? Yeah, I think that's the first aim. I think West Indies are good knockout and tournament teams. We're not the best team when it comes to series, 
So the consistency definitely leaves us um, and that's not something that we can say is our benchmark. But we have the players that can win a couple of games and qualify. And then you have those same players that can put in two big performances in the semi and the final and win the tournament. So I think saying we'll go there and we'll win is a step too far. But by the same token, if the first step is to actually qualify, once you do get to the semis, I would back them to have two good performances. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. The PSL final happened last weekend. I, w- I was completely hooked. Um, the end result wasn't that close, but the atmosphere in the ground was incredible. Just like totally unlike anything you'd, you'd see in a game uh, in the UK. Uh, Lahore Calendars won it, meaning that all six sides in the PSL have won the competition in its seven-year history. Um, with, with my England hat on, Harry Brook played uh, a brilliant innings, 41 off 22. Um, he's, just, he's just really calm. Like he was happy to be eight off nine, kind of backed himself to accelerate at the end. It was quite a, quite a tricky, quite a slow wicket. Um, and he's, he's, only, he's only just turned 23. His record at the death is amazing. His record against pace is amazing. I was a bit sceptical about his T20i call-up for the West Indies series because he had a quite a difficult big bash season. But as, as Ben Duckett said on last week's show, that can be really difficult going into his leagues as a young overseas pro. But it's made me think, like, he, he's, the, he's the person who's going to end Owen Morgan's career at one point or another. I'm not saying that should happen now, but he's a natural heir, I think, to bat five or six in that England T20 side. And he had an amazing PSL, amazing 100, amazing blast in 2021 and in 2020. He's built up a really formidable set of numbers in T20 cricket. It'll be interesting to see how Morgan handles this himself because he's not the sort of bloke that's going to hang around if he doesn't think he's worth his place in the side. He's, he's too sensible, pragmatic, proud for that. And if there is someone like Harry Brook coming through that can fulfil that role, and there aren't that, that's a tricky role. With England are awash with opening options, but that, that middle-order option, it, that they're, they're few and far between. That's why they attract so much money when it comes to the franchise tournaments. But if he is starting to look like he can fulfil that role, Morgan might think, well, maybe this is the time to, to take one step aside. Carlos used the word arrogant earlier about young players coming through and how it's quite a key marker. Brook has that. It just oozes off him. And he had that reputation as well, actually, when he was a teenager. He was England under-19s captain and, you know, cock of the walk. And he's, he's taken that that kind of attitude into his Yorkshire career. Bit of a breakout summer last year in the 100. Obviously, he's got the nod now for England. Um, and you see it. You see that in a player. You see it a mile off. And he has that. He has that kind of big match sort of sparkle to him. Have you seen much of Brooke in the, in the 100? Yeah, um, he was part of the team that knocked my Manchester Originals for 200. Um, <laughs> Sorry to bring that up then. Um, and yeah, playing for Birmingham Bears last year, we played against them a couple of times. Um, and I think we shot them out for like 90 odd um, at home at Edgbaston. And he was just a rock. Um, he was very difficult to dislodge. And it's just something about the way that he sets up. Um, I think he is your typical modern dynamic player, someone who I think, I guess, I don't know, his stats would either back me up or say otherwise, but he looks like someone that can bat at six in red ball cricket and be a link between the new ball, the first new ball, if the team is in trouble, be able to graft it out. Um, and if the team is in a good position, really play that Adam Gilchrist role where you put the opposition under pressure, leading straight into the second new ball. But by the same token, he could bat at three, four, five or six in white ball cricket. Um, That's bang on, by the way. It's exactly how it's played out for him. His Red Bull record's not great in terms of, you know, average and stats, but he's played important innings at certain points. You know, he made a, Breakout 100 at Chelmsford against Essex. 
couple of years back. And he made a couple of key innings last year as well in Red Bull cricket. Kind of game-changing innings. And he had a good... His overall record last year was good. Yeah. It was, it was decent, wasn't it? Yeah. And it's, it's getting better all the time. Mm. Yeah. On on Lahore, Carlos, you had a interesting backstory to their success. Yeah. So when Lahore came in to PSL, they had all the biggest names. Um, one of the smaller of those biggest names to pass through Lahore would be Carlos Brathwaite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, Dwayne Bravo, Sunil Narine, Brendan McCollum, A.B. De Villiers, all those big names that have passed through Lahore, Calanders, and I think for the first four um, episodes, they finished dead last each time. Um, since then, they would have had more humble names um, with all due respect to the names they're about to call your Ben Dunks, your Samit Patels, your David Visas, um, who are very admirable cricketers in their own right, but wouldn't command the same attention that the other names would. Um, they've gone away and they've done a lot of scouting with fast bowling. So Harris Rolf would have come through their academy. Um, Shaheen Afridi would have been brought through with Lahore Calanders. And it's a real nice mesh of just going back to the drawing board, really building something from the ground up. Um, I think they were in the finals year before last. Um, and now winning it this year. So it's a real turnaround from having all the star names, all the star quality and finishing last. And I don't think it was the fault of any of the big names. It's just how it happened to now going back to drawing board, having more humble names, building on what I felt when I was there as a real good family atmosphere from the owners to the staff to the players um, and eventually winning. So a very nice story in how you can build from the ground up, um, believe in the process um, and eventually be successful. And they're a really good young quick called Zaman Khan, who um, they put a lot of trust in, bold, important overs, quite quite slingy. And yeah, really, Shaheen clearly really backed him. Um, it's another little bit of England franchise news. Jason Roy has pulled out of the IPL, citing bubble fatigue. He's taking a short break from the game. And so he won't be starting this summer with no, Surrey. No, so he's not, playing, he's not playing for Surrey in the early stages of the county championship. Either. Pakistan Australia would also have started by the time this pod is released. Um, the first three days are a sellout at Royal Pindi, which is amazing. Nasim Shah is back in the Pakistan squad after Harris Ralph caught COVID. Uh, it's the first time Australia have toured Pakistan for a test series since 1998 when Mark Taylor was captain. Cameron Green wasn't born yet. And Australia had only won one men's 50 over World Cup. Phil, dare I ask, what were you up to in November 98? <laughs> that was my first winter at university leave that there yeah I think best uh, <laughs> best, to, best to move swiftly on oh Jamie 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 Smith um, <laughs> not the sorry not the sorry keeper <laughs> it's probably born around then Taha's out there isn't he Taha is out there Taha so you're going there. to so, so you asked me what I was doing back then and now you ask him about the cricket alright fine okay fair <laughs> enough so you and, you and Ben are off to Barbados yeah Taha's off to Pakistan yeah. or is in Pakistan yeah. and Phil and I and just we're off what, to the Hanover down the road just, <laughs> just hold the fort here um, that should be a really good series really good season we'll have Taha on after each of those three tests it's great this sellout as well because when they I first know. returned test cricket to Pakistan a year or so ago no it was slightly odd wasn't it the yeah. first test match it was kind of eerily empty after the weather the, was really bad as yeah, well. yeah it was really smoggy and yeah. quite chilly so it's great that it's going to be a sellout and photos of the pitch Road, absolute road, but that's you know that's it probably a good be. thing as, as well. Yeah, be, yeah, I think you want to see a game go the distance there as well, and you know a lot of pace through the air both sides. So, look, should be an absolute belter. It's on Sky as well for our UK listeners. Um, yeah, so it should be good. Saf could beat New Zealand to level the series over there. Carlos, uh, Joe at the start of the series predicted a really close series, which didn't look like a very good prediction off the first game, but it's proven yeah, right. 
Bramley mocked, one. Yeah. I think. And then you were really looking forward to the third test. Yeah, I did. I have to say. Look, <laughs> my attention just... has been elsewhere, I will admit. <laughs> but I was really excited about the third test, which unfortunately is, is not happening. It was a two-test series. <laughs> well, which, you know, a one-all-test series, that's pretty pretty nip and tuck, as I said, mm, I think. Absolutely. and um, Even if it was two quite convincing wins for yeah, different sides. It's, it's a really good few months for Africa, beating India, the two, beating India at home and then drawing against New Zealand. Um, there was quite an interesting tweet from Tim Wigmore who said that a lot of people said when New Zealand got to the World Test Championship final last time that part of the reason they got there was because they had loads of two test series, which is easier, was the argument. But actually, their wins are just gone shows how hard it is to, you, you can't slip at any point. You need to win every single match if you've got those two test series, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, elsewhere, Bangladesh ended up winning that ODI series we talked about last week against Afghanistan 2-1. Uh, in the last game, Ramanullah Gurbaz scored 100 for Afghanistan. Only Paul Sterling and Quinton de Kock have scored more men's ODI 100s before turning 21 than Gurbaz. Moving on, um, Carlos, your Twitter bio reads, professional cricketer, entrepreneur, Man United fan, we'll gloss over that, and NFT enthusiast. Uh, I think it's fair to say that a lot of our listeners will have heard about NFTs without really knowing what they are but this is a, a real passion of yours uh, you've got a qualification in this area i believe uh, so first off what is an nft and why are you interested in them so firstly what an nft is not is just a picture of an ip um <laughs> i was gonna ask about you i was gonna ask that later <laughs> um so it stands for non-fungible token um and i guess to not get too technical it's literally a digital representation um of something and it's verified by something called the blockchain. Um, so you think about the persons that would have loved Pokemon cards or sports cards. If I wanted to get a sports card from you, I have no way of ensuring that it's authentic. The blockchain does that for us. They allow us to authenticate, verify owners. Um, they verify the marketplace that you buy it from. And they also tell you what it was sold for before and you can see a full history. So you can't trick the blockchain. And I think that is where NFTs um, are worth the weight in gold. The rise of NFTs have been because of art. So it's allowed, allowed creators, whether it be artists, singers, whatever, to be able to monetize their creation. So no longer someone doing a nice painting and hoping to sell it in a market. Um, they're now putting it on the blockchain, um, selling it as an NFT. They can do auctions. And what's also nice about that is if they sell it today for $10 because they're no one and in 10 years they blow up and it's on the size of the Mona Lisa, they get no proceeds from the secondary sale. With NFTs, if you're a singer, uh, artist, whatever, you put your creation out and today it's worth $10, you sell it for that. But in the smart contract, you can write in that you can get 5, 10, 15% of secondary sales. So in five years, you become very massive. Everyone knows your name, your household, um, your household name. And now your production is worth 10, 20, 50 times what you sold it for. You always get a percentage of the secondary income in perpetuity. Mm, there's, I've seen one going around of uh, Ravi Bopar with his trousers down from the 100. That's quite quite funny. Um, as I said at the start, you've got a lot of expertise in this area. And a lot of people, myself included, have read articles about environmental concerns around NFTs, that when the blockchain is mined, my technical terminology might be off here, uh, that that is bad for the environment, a lot of carbon 
is is offloaded. And there's also kind of this confusion around what you mentioned earlier. No one understands what. Why is John Terry flogging these apes, and why why are they valued so much? So, one are those environmental concerns legitimate, and and two, what what are these digital apes? So the environmental concerns it all started with Bitcoin um, and the blockchain. You had to do proof of work. So in order to log something on the blockchain and for it to be verified, um, you would spit out a mathematical um, equation and whoever solves it first have won the ability to add that block to the blockchain and then you're rewarded with Bitcoin. That's called proof of work. That is very bad for the environment. And as a result, every cryptocurrency coin um, since then have gone more to a proof of stake. So we create the coins beforehand and now the persons who get the opportunity to add the block to the blockchain are the ones who has the most coins um, because their stake, um, they don't want the blockchain to be compromised. So the more invested you are in a coin or in a blockchain, the less you want to be compromised. And as a result, you win the opportunity to mine that block. Um, Crypto.com and a few other platforms have gone carbon neutral. Um, and that is where the, I think that is where the space will get to, where persons who don't quite understand NFTs can actually realize, well, this is just like typing www dot something into an address bar and actually interacting with an NFT, interacting with a marketplace, and it's not actually killing the environment. So I think the space has evolved in the last two to three years, and it will continue to evolve um, with places like Crypto.com, who are very well-versed internationally in all specters, um, trying to go as carbon neutral as possible. And those, why are the apes so popular? So the apes, um, again, it's a digital token. So your ape is just a physical re or a visual representation of an actual token um, on the blockchain. So with the apes, um, they are almost like a ticket to a social club. Um, so you think of your golf um, clubs or your social clubs where you go in and you have access to a gym and to a coffee club where you meet really interesting people. A lot of important people have bought the apes. And so, then they're joining this club. Correct. So if you it. buy the NFT from yeah. Board Ape Yacht Club and they have a meet in real life. You have the ability to rub shoulders with a Steph Curry or Jimmy Fallon, um, Eminem, etc. So you're not buying an ape. The ape is a visual representation of your ticket into the Board Ape Yacht Club fraternity of sorts. So you have an NFT drop coming out. What's in it? And it's worth saying that as well as the NFTs themselves, there are tangible real life things that are included as well. Yeah, so I wanted to um, do an NFT drop on my own to put out some creative artwork. Not as creative as Ravi's pants dung from The 100. Um, but I also wanted to add a charitable component. So I've started a charity um, in my mum's, um, or for my mum. So it's named Project Ricky. Um, and we try to, support breast cancer initiatives unfortunately she suffered breast cancer she's in remission now and she's happy and healthy but while she was going through her ordeal she really struggled financially to pay for the treatments so a lot of the breast cancer societies raise awareness but i've been on the side where awareness is not enough and you actually need physical tangible cash to be able to get chemo aftercare etc so my aim long term for the charity is for it to be able to give back to persons who are less fortunate who need chemotherapy 
who need aftercare and may come up short. Um, and part of the drop, primary and secondary sales will go towards Project Ricky, which would in some light be able to assist a few people. And I hope is something that we can do long term and continue to add to the people that can get financial aid. Um, some of it is a nod to my um, certificate in financial technology um, and my Harvard executive course that we've completed in um, December. And then part of it is Carlos Braffitt, the superhero. <laughs> um, so just trying to build a community of persons in cricket that may know about NFTs. And there are a lot of people that in cricket that don't know about them. And I just trying to bring NFTs to the cricket fraternity, allow them to see that it's not just apes. Um, it's not just $100,000 um, quote unquote money laundering schemes. It has real world utility. Um, and in some way, I try to use my profile and my network to be able to give back to those persons that would have invested um, in the artwork as well as in the charity. Mm, really interesting. If you're, I in think I've learned more in the last six minutes than I have in the last six months. Trying to figure this <laughs> out. I was thinking the same. I think Thanks for that, mate. I think Carlos is maybe the fifth or sixth person who explained that to me, and now I finally understand it. We even ran an article in the magazine, which I didn't yeah, understand. Um, if you've got more questions, I'd really recommend the Guardian Football Weekly episode on NFTs. It's about an hour long from about a month or so ago. It's a really balanced explanation um, and debate around them. It's, I would recommend that. Um, and lastly, where should people go if they're interested in, in your job? So crypto.com. Um, they've been very good, again, talking about carbon neutral, caring for the environment. Um, they've invested a lot of money in not only bringing cryptocurrency and breaking down barriers to the normal person who wouldn't understand it, stuff like allowing you to purchase with credit cards and debit cards as opposed to just having to buy crypto and interacting with platforms. Um, and they've gone fully carbon neutral. Um, they've also just renamed or bought the rights for the LA Lakers and Clippers Stadium. They have a big presence in F1. So they're here to stay as a crypto and an NFT platform. Um, and I felt it was best to use that platform because they felt as though they wanted to give back the same way I want to align my interests with the environment um, and build a community. Um, so crypto.com is where it will be. Um, and they're trying to bring out a whole separate NFT platform. And, you know, if I don't want to show my own personal Twitter, but aside from um the man united stuff that you wouldn't want to see um i try to you know retweet projects retweet education join spaces that would talk about education around nfts understanding the nft space is not a space to get a quick cash grab um i think it is where the future lies imagine building a house buying a house and attaching an nft to it and then every time that house is sold in perpetuity you get one percent i think that's where nfts will go so me trying to link the cricket community to understand nfts and really do some deep dives and research and education around it um follow me on twitter follow crypto.com nft and really start to understand the blockchain nft cryptocurrency etc now for some podcast admin uh for shows that don't directly follow a match we will now be releasing episodes from 7 a.m uk morning time uh, unless this announcement is met with widespread backlash. Uh, also, you might have noticed that our adverts are slightly different from this show going forward to how they used to be. Again, if you have particularly strong feelings about that, um, feel also free to Also bear in mind in that we do have to put food on the table. <laughs> yeah, yeah, get in touch at po podcast at wisdom.com 
as always. We've had some amazing correspondence with our listeners over the last few weeks, um, exchanging ideas about how to take the show forward. I've not replied to everyone yet, but I will do soon. Um, all those thoughts and contributions are extremely valued by all of us. Here, here. Um, next up, a conversation I had with Shield Berry, the man who has watched more England tests than anyone else, dead or alive. And after that, we'll finish off with a final couple of questions from our listeners. Before we move on, time for something a little bit different this week. Joining us now is Shield Berry, the chief cricket writer at the Daily Telegraph and former Wisden Almanac editor. Shield has a new book out, Beyond the Boundaries, travels on England cricket tours about the considerable time he spent following England play all around the world. Um, Shield, one of your many claims to fame is that you have supposedly watched more England test matches live than any other living person. Um, is this true? And how many do you reckon you, you watched and where did it all begin? Well, uh, living or dead, I think, um, because John Woodcock uh, told me that I'd um, uh, watched more than he had, uh, which is good enough for me. Uh, he said that he had watched um, just under 400 England tests, um, but uh, about uh, 20-odd, maybe 420 in all, given uh, the other, you know, Australia versus West Indies series and whatever he would have covered. Um, so, yeah, he told, he, he sort of passed the mantle on <laughs> and told me that I'd, um, having clocked um, 450 a couple of years ago, um, but that was before COVID, so I haven't seen that many since. Uh, I'll never reach 500. I think Richie Benno did, is the only person who's done 500. And um, thus it should remain. So I guess you're also the most qualified man to ask the following question. Um, was 2021 the worst year you've ever seen from the England Test side? Oh, gosh, no. No, no, no. Uh, let's not rewrite history to that extent. Let's go back to January. I mean, wasn't it glorious in Gaul, those two Test matches? Um, I mean, you could say Sri Lanka were the equivalent of maybe India's second eleven um, in standard, but still, I mean, th those pitches were, were ragging quite a bit. And for Joe Root to play those, yeah, you know, hundred uh, double hundred and one hundred and eighty, I mean, those were those two innings uh, plus the double hundred in Chennai. I mean, he took the standard of English batsmanship in Asia to a higher level. I mean, uh, KP, Kevin Peterson have played the most amazing attacking uh, 150 or whatever uh, in Colombo a few years earlier. That was, you know, the standout innings um, uh, along with his um, 100 in Mumbai, you remember with Alistair Cook, uh, that masterful partnership. So KP had played a couple of absolutely breathtaking innings running down the wicket and uh, hit to all parts but what Joe Root did in those three in Asia only this time last year was a new level of batsmanship the batsmanship that Root set out in those three uh, test matches a year ago uh, was, was, was masterly um, because of his, his, his all forms of sweep were mastered and don't forget yeah that was those three test victories only a year ago made it six overseas test wins in a row for England. So it's not all been darkness. Mm. Um, you, you say at the start of the book that there are a few better ways to earn a living than what you've done over the last 45 years or so. I mean, even towards the end of your time touring with England, 
did you still pinch yourself at how uh, privileged, I guess, you were to do what mm. you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, just sort of uh, waking up every day thinking, yeah, but, but, but. <laughs> uh, I didn't tell the editor that um, I'd be ready to work for nothing, but uh, <laughs> uh, nothing more than expenses. But um, yeah, I mean, that's uh, most of the time because every day of, least of test cricket, but yeah, almost every day of cricket is something completely novel. You have no idea what is going to happen when you go to the ground on the first morning of a test. Um, the only certainty is that this is not going to be exactly the same as any other previous test matches has played. So it is the most wonderful format. Well, we've had two and a half thousand tests. And the only time I've felt bored with test cricket, it was not recently at all, but Back in 1987, 88, I think it was, uh, England were touring New Zealand and Richard Hadley broke down in the first test. And so all New Zealand wanted was a, a nil-all draw. And England were not in the most, um, well, they were so jaded after a very long winter um, that they weren't in the, in the mood to play much either. And so the second and third tests were so repetitious. I mean, board draws. And the the absence of spirit vitality uh, really got to me. Um, so uh, the second and third tests were very similar as well. Um, that's the only time I felt um, cricket being repetitious and, and dull. We, we we seem to read an article about the impending death of Test cricket on a near monthly basis. Um, with your experience, how, how do you think the health of Test cricket is at the moment? Is it something that you worry about in the um, short or even medium-term future? Um, I was lucky in that I started in the 70s um, when um, cricket was getting out of the moribund state as it had been in the 1950s and, and 60s. And I think if you just go back then, obviously the, the over-rates were higher but the run rates, you know, two and over was fast. And the amount of tedium, the number of five test series that would be drawn nil all. I mean, not England against other countries, but also, you know, India playing Pakistan. The, the, the dullness, the defensiveness, the field placings of cricket in the mid-late 50s till the mid-60s, until the West Indies breathed life into Test cricket. I mean, cricket is a far healthier position than it was then. Um, I mean, sometimes, you know, run rights in Test cricket are almost indistinguishable from what they would be in a one-day international or T20. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. So the, the actual health of Test cricket now on the field, the spectacle... Uh, you know, it, it is really treasured. We're really lucky to be around now. Um, then there's the commercial angle. I mean, whether it can be uh, sold to broadcasters, but, you know, if they're five-day tests, you know, that's a lot of, um, that's 30 hours of television. So I think there's always going to be somebody out there. It's a question, I think, of which countries are going to play test cricket. You know, whether Sri Lanka can afford to go to West Indies for a two-test series that, you know, not much prospect either making the World Test Championship final. You know, that sort of test series um, might be just clinging on by the fingernails. But I think, you know, there'll always be 
the foreseeable future, England, Australia, India, whatever, um, the bigger games. And we want to watch New Zealand, don't we? We want three tests in New Zealand. The South Africa, they're reviving. I mean, they're going to be fascinating next summer. You know, let's have three tests against them. Why not make it five? You know, why not let's go back there and tour? So um, at the top of the pyramid, um, there's a, a, so much test cricket to be watched, worth watching. But let's not have two test series, please, if possible. Mm. Um, back onto your book. What, <laughs> what is it about? What is it about? Um, well, um, I sensed my uh, time was coming, or my time for touring was coming to an end, because um, it is um, now, not when I started, uh, quite a demanding pastime. I mean, the days are long uh, abroad. Um, you know, if it's just a test match day, it's 10 hours for a start. And then next morning, the day after a test, it always seems to be um, the team have got a flight somewhere at 10.30 um, in the morning. So whatever time you book for your flight, you know, mid-afternoon, there's always a press conference. The England coaches give you a press conference at half past eight before they go off to the airport. So, you know, you've finished at you know, wound down at midnight the night before, then you've got to pack and get into the car, team hotel, whatever. Um, so it can become a very long week after a five-day test. Um, and So I, I thought my the physical demands were becoming too much. I just wanted to stand back and spend a bit of time at home. The, uh, the physical demands of test cricket were coming a bit too much. And so when I went to a country, I sort of realised it was for the last time. And so I would write down notes, um, flesh out a chapter uh, to, you know, for, for, for part of my own sake, just have something to remember, uh, you know, the, the key moments in each of those countries. Try to capture the essence of each country and each country's cricket. Um, so that's what I wanted to communicate to the reader. Uh, so I probably started, you know, four or five years ago as I toured a country for the last time. And with COVID, you know, people can't go on tour anymore. Um, hopefully that's changing in the West Indies um, in the next few weeks. Um, so a lot of people out there may never have been able to go to Australia and know what an Ashes tour is like. And I wanted to capture that experience for them. Mm. It, it, would you say the book is primarily a cricket book or a, or a travel book? Both. It's a cricket travel book. Uh, that's what I, I, I tried to, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've always you know, been interested in, in travel writing. Um, mm and uh, reading about countries which I've never been to and never will, will be able to go to. So, um, yeah, sort of passing it on. Um, what's it like to tour the, uh, go on an England tour of these countries? Mm. Um, I found your chapter on South Africa fascinating. It ends quite optimistically, but, the, but they detail some pretty grim stuff that's actually in its recent past, the treatment of players like Antini and Tsutsobbe in, in, in the last 15, 20 years. Um, where, where did those kernels of optimism um, at the end of that chapter come for you? Um, I did the England tour of South Africa, the test tour, the four test uh, series tour. Uh, and I just thought um, the sort of spark might have been uh, beginning then. Um, but then the subsequent changes, um, I think they had sort of truth and reconciliation camps 
uh, in which people talked. And after that tour of South Africa, when they went to Pakistan, um, when they were playing in this T20 World Cup, I, from a distance on, on the TV, detected um, a difference, a different body language. Um, you know, until a couple of years ago, all the white national anthems lined up, all the white guys put arms around each other and all the non-white guys put arms around the, each other on the other side. But I think, and uh, um, Temba Bavuma in the T20 World Cup, um, uh, there's been a coming together. There is now a colour blindness. They're all celebrating each um, other's successes equally. They are pulling in the right direction. The strategy, the ideology is now finally sorted out. Um, it's taken, what, 30 years? but I think they're getting there in the end. Um, to finish off, just a quick question. If there's one country you could pick out to spend three months in for another tour, which would it be? Pass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'd probably go for um, the uh, country which is nearest, simply because I've got a dodgy knee and squeezing into an aircraft seat. Um, but it is like counties. I've got a soft spot for every county, which sounds mushy. Uh, and, you know, a soft spot for each country. I mean, if, you, if you've been to a place and you can begin to understand it and its people, uh, you've got a sympathy in build. Um, so it's very difficult to... to uh, I, I, I can't say which, but... Um, um, sorry, yes, it's, it's difficult. Um, the, the, there's something to be said for all of them. Um, you know, soft spot, happy memories in each place. Um, and yeah, of the place and, and it's cricket and you know I wish them all well sorry it's, it's a, it sounds a, a trite thing but that, I think that's you know 45 years of uh, travelling around has made me given me the privilege of being able to get under the skin to understand separate countries different places um, and that's what's left no, that's a good, good answer. And I think it's one that um, sells your book well as well. Thanks for your time, Shield. Um, listeners, if you'd like to buy the book, head to wisdom.com forward slash shop and then head to the book section where you'll find Beyond the Boundaries. Thanks again for your time. Phil, we'll go to you for this question. The Ron Out blog asks, oh. um, in chapter one in this Nagel book, how does he characterise the kind of realism he wants to defend and how does it differ from other forms of realism? It would be a huge help if you could get this to me in time for my lecture. That's from the Run Out blog. Well, I think his lecture's already taken place, right? And there's only Possibly. one person in here with a diploma, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. You, you make your own reality. So. <laughs> They've really gone up a notch, haven't they? Yeah. The questions we're getting in... <laughs> Um, and then finally, James writes in to say, so James asked a question a couple of weeks ago. Um, if it makes you feel better about the, the geekery of the pod, I listened to the pod whilst cleaning my golf clubs. On hearing my question, I charged into the sitting room to tell my wife I was now famous and did a dance that definitely lasted longer than it should have done. I was also cleaning my golf clubs in an apron and pink marigolds. So the look was quite something. Keep up the great work and decide to subscribe to the magazine as well now. I don't embarrass easily, so no issues at all if any of the above is read. 
fantastic. <laughs> Just let that stand for itself. <laughs> it's the marigolds that completes yeah. it, isn't it? Yeah, nice, nice image. Um, anyway, that is all for today's show. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Joe. And Carlos, pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks for coming, mate. That was great. Yeah, cheers, Carlos. Enjoyed this it. has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. We'll be back next week. Cheers. Podcast Network.